Roderick Cave is a retired academic, bibliophile, and an expert on modern fine printing. Welcome to the bibliophile. Thank you. You've written a book entitled The Golden Cockerel Press, mm -hmm. 2002. Perhaps uh, you could start by giving us a thumbnail history of the press. I'd interviewed as many people as I could of those who were around in the earliest days. But there were two difficulties I found when I was talking about the earliest period where uh, one of the owners was a rather brackety lady, so to speak. What does Her that mean, brackety lady? Loose? Slipped around, yes. Okay. Um, Why would that be a problem? <laughs> well, her friends didn't really like to talk about it very much, and I, I found it difficult to talk to these very respectable old ladies and say, well, you know, did she really sleep with everybody she met? And so I had to read between the, the carefully edited information they gave me. Okay. And when was the press set up to start? It with? was set up in 1920. It was first going to be purely um, an experimental literary press. It was going to print one of the small magazines for one of the poetry groups. In London? No, they were based out in Berkshire, uh, in the, the country. Which would have been where relative to oh, London? Oh, 15, 20 miles west. It was rural enough. They had, I think dreams of growing their own fruit and vegetables and living the good life. And yeah. found it was harder than that. Who was they? Was it a cooperative? Yes, it was. And Al Taylor and his wife, Gay Taylor. They owned it and they sold it to Robert Gibbings, the wood engraver. And Robert Gibbings bought it with funding from a, another Irish friend to save a book that he'd been working on. He'd been doing... Brantome's Lives of Gallant Ladies, and he'd done all the wood engravings for it. Very, very good work it was. And the press was going to disappear, and he didn't want to see his work disappear. So he bought this plant in Berkshire and managed to keep it going very successfully for another ten years. And that was the big time for the, the Golden Cockerel. Passion for fine printing was at its height people wanted fine editions. They didn't want just the Kelmscott Press stuff from 30, 40 years. They wanted fine printing, but with a modern 20s feel about it. Gibbings was very good at doing that. He had some other artists who worked with him very closely. Above all, Eric Gill. Gill's work in the books in those years was very important indeed. You know, because he was a, a fashionable artist, they could charge high prices for his books. And they could do some experimental things, which if they had Gibbing's name or Gill's name attached to it, would sell anyway. So in those years, before the Depression, they were in the position where their editions were almost always overscribed before publication. Well, you talk about experimentation, you mean in terms of the content? The literary content or the, the type of uh, design or, or what? Not so much in the literary content. They played for safety almost entirely. Uh, not to the limit of producing yet another edition of the Sonnets of Portuguese or the Rubaiyat of Amakayam or whatever. But yes, there would be standard authors in more or less standard text. They weren't trying to make literary editions with 
good editorial apparatus, but a book which would look good and have some attractive pictures. And this was one of the things they were doing, I think, because a lot of these illustrations were what, testing English attitudes to nudity in art and things like that in the 20s. Eric Gill, in particular, tried to test them in ways that frightened his partner quite a lot. They were flirting with obscenity laws? Certainly with the obscenity laws as they were in England in those days, yes, they were quite ridiculous. But the, you know, the fuss of having to defend yourself in court and so on, was, it was pretty frightening. And quite a lot of the little presses suffered in that sort of way. From fear of litigation or prosecution? Yes, and I think the feeling that if you went too far in testing the waters, you might find that you would be regarded as just a pornographer, and therefore people wouldn't want to buy you anymore. It was as they, much about reputation as, as it was about fear of getting holed up in court. Probably. And the, the odd things about obscenity and private presses anyway was that they could get away with murder in the way that you couldn't if you were producing an ordinary trade edition. And it seems to be in the unspeaking assumption that if you produced a book selling at five guineas or ten guineas or whatever it might be, it was a gentleman who's buying it and he wasn't going to be corrupted. Right, but, but the lower the, classes... The lower classes mustn't have things like that at all. So it's elitist. Hmm. And there were often two varieties of the book that were produced. They developed what was called the ordinary edition, illustrated with, say, ten wood engravings in a full Morocco binding, something like that, as a high price or slightly lower price, with not quite so many engravings and perhaps a half binding. But the thing was, the special editions had more special illustrations. If they were going to hint at pubic hair or whatever in the illustrations, that was where they would be. Okay, and typically these limited special editions would only run uh, 50 or 100 copies. Oh, yes. Yeah. yes. Throughout your book, uh, The Golden Cockerel Press, published by the British Library and Oak Knoll Press, you are refreshingly not judgmental, but what you do is you say they started off in this manner and finally, for example, when we get to Twelfth Night, here's a really good example of, a, of an excellent book. Yes. Very specifically, how do, you, how do you make those judgments? Assuming knowledge that I don't really have. Some of it obviously comes from having read loads of reviews of the books when they were published in the 20s. What the, the reviewers then thought was good. Or, you know, what has been seized on later on to go into the book exhibitions and things like that. But sometimes it was just my own judgment. I would take a couple of things which are more or less comparable and I'd say one is good, one's not so good because of what it is about them. And so that's, what, that's what I want you to get to, because of what? In other words, what advice could you give the book collector who's got a, an option to purchase a couple of different Cockrell Press editions, what are they going to look for? As far as I'm concerned, it's very much like looking down the street and see a couple of young women walking down. 
and one of them you find you're looking at much, much more. <laughs> you're, you're in love with them. them. Yes, and certainly with the, the private Facebook, it is very much like a love affair, overwhelmed by the attractiveness about the illustrations or quality of the binding or whatever it might be. For example, then, the quality of the binding, what, what would determine if one binding was better quality than another? Firstly, the materials good Morocco rather than calf or cheaper materials. The quality of the shops who do the binding, and most of the time the Golden Copper Press used the firm called Sangor Skin Sutcliffe in London, by far the best trade binder there was at the time. You wouldn't find a binder of that sort anymore in England. If you take a modern comparison with the Folio Society producing its deluxe editions, they have to send to a binder in Germany because he's got the quality that the English have lost now long since. So in your book, do you indicate which of the Golden Corporal Press books were bound by Fengorski? I haven't listed it as such, but it's, it's fairly clear from the, the details how it was handled. Before 1933-34, when the ownership transferred to other people, and they were using um, Zangorski and Sutcliffe exclusively afterwards, but before that, Robert Gibbings had sometimes shopped around with different binders. You know, it was the usual sort of thing. They used a binder they found good, and then something would go wrong, and you think, right, I'm going to go to the yeah. instead. In the end, they had to abandoned Zangorski and Sutcliffe because they simply couldn't afford the rates you know, for the quality of work they were going to do. And I think the problem was in the 1950s, you know, when the Golden Copper was getting on hard times, people didn't have the money to pay for the real deluxe edition. And they weren't different anymore either. They weren't excitingly different from those done 20 years earlier. Is there any indication on the bindings who the binder is or not? Almost always they've got either the little label tucked in at the back, you know, under the board, saying Zangorski and Sutcliffe, or it will be in the colophon as well. So it's not that difficult for a collector to, to determine then? No, it shouldn't be. Yeah. And certainly if you look around at copies which you know are in the good deluxe editions, you can distinguish yourself between the good and the not quite so good very easily. And there are a lot of collections in North America, of course, that have got a lot of these things. How easy is it for just the average collector to get a hold of these books? They're available on the market all the time. You've got to have a lot of money if you want the famous books. Four Gospels with Eric Gill's engravings. I don't know how many thousands of dollars you'll have to pay for it now. But there are other smaller books which will have illustrations by Eric Gills and so on which you could buy for two or three hundred dollars so you can start in a small way you know I think maybe we should move over to that other side there okay. if you don't mind we're getting a bit noisy yeah yeah they're having too much fun over there <laughs> okay there we go. Okay, so we're looking at uh, several thousands of dollars for the four Gospels, but yes. several hundred. Can you identify some sleepers for us that, uh, that may not cost a huge amount, but that you think are really uh, excellent examples of the press's work? There are many smaller books which were illustrated by David Jones or Eric Gill or John Buckland Wright, some of the other 
fine engravers of the period and for some reason they're not highly regarded. If you wanted David Jones you pay a lot extra because people collect him in the way they collect Eric Gill. Right. But if the artists are less fashionable then you can get the work much more easily. Bravidius, he is sort of middle ground, perhaps a little bit better. If you're buying for artists, you can still get some very nice work there. What do you mean? The price is not unreasonable in relation to what you're getting. For what? Well, I was talking about Jones just now. He illustrated Gulliver's Travels. It's been published in two volumes. I found one copy of volume one. Very cheaply. Who wants to buy only one volume? Well, I wanted it, because I could get his illustrations at a price I could afford, whereas if I wanted two volumes, I would have been paying six or seven hundred dollars, which I didn't have. And you could always find uh, volume two, uh, hopefully, at Perhaps. some point, for uh, the same <laughs> yes. kind of money. During the war, in order to dispose of and make a profit on some of the books that they published in the late 1930s and simply were not selling you know, because the market was so bad, they put them up into a cheaper binding and sold them you know, when books were so difficult to get in the early 1940s. And you can find these in the cheaper binding often very easily and you'll be paying a fraction of the price you would for the thing if it had been in full Morocco that we were talking about before. Okay. And yet text is the same, the illustrations are the same, the papers the same. I pursued these things and bought quite a lot of them, mostly because I wanted to make sure I'd seen all the variations of the, the edition, although I made mistakes in that, I've no doubt. Gibbings takes us from when to when then? Um, he bought in 1924 and I suppose it was 1932-33. Okay. He'd really stopped work a couple of years earlier because of the depression. Nobody was buying anything and he was bound into a mortgage with the bank. So he had to go out He had work. to go. The people who took over were lucky enough to have more money. They could say, okay, we like this, we'll do it. They didn't pay him anything like the money he would have liked, of course but they managed to keep the thing going because they could say, we'll buy this press. I think they paid £12,000, which was quite a lot of money in those days. And we will take no money out of it at all until we are making profits, which really meant not until the end of World War II. So they were going on publishing in the 30s, subsidizing the production out of their own pockets. And who were they? Oh, this was somebody called Christopher Sanford, who was the owner of the Golden Cockle from 1930s till about 1960 when he sold it. And he had um, a junior partner called Owen Rutter, who was an author, editor more than anything else. He wasn't a printer in any way. He had become involved with Robert Gibbings in the first day in working on books together. They were both interested in the bounty, you know, Captain Bly and all the rest of it. So they did those books together. As a partnership, it worked fairly well, but as in all partnerships, there were very strong arguments at times. I suppose when I went through the correspondence, I was often disappointed that they decided not to do something yeah. because only one partner wanted it. Right. But you could see what a beautiful book they could have made out of the thing they were working on.
The other, other problem, of course, was the time that they had money available uh, when the books had really been selling very well and they could sink money into fine printing would have been the middle of World War II, you know, 1942-43-44. Three-quarters of the wood engravers away serving in the RAF or the Navy or wherever they might be. And where would they be able to buy the materials? They often couldn't do things nearly as elaborately as they would have wished. But they, they didn't do badly. One of the other things that people have said to me, too, was that during the war years, there was very little you could buy if you wanted to give somebody a luxury present. Oh, yeah. You know, you couldn't go to Astrid and buy some silver jewellery or give them a, a fur coat or whatever. What do you give them? And a limited edition of this right sort of text was just the sort of thing that would appeal. Yeah, I've read that elsewhere, that the war years were not bad for a lot of publishers. Well, they had their paper limits, I guess. It was the uh, paper limits that did it, but really, if they could print anything at all, they did very well indeed. Typically things that talked about, you know, why the war started, even things like airplane identification. Did you ever come across a series called Ladybird Books? Yes. Okay. Well, they were produced by a firm in Loughborough, where it came from, and originally it was because they had an unusually generous allowance of paper in 1940, so they had to use it, or it would be taken away from them. And they thought, what do we do with this? Okay, we'll produce a series of children's books very easily, very quickly. And it became uh, an enormous success. I don't know how many tens of millions of copies they sold. I could remember seeing... Um, when we were working in Nigeria, that there would be copies of some of these books with the text in Hausa, not just in English, printed in Loughborough and exported around the world by this. I wonder if the gold cockerel looked at anything that would bring pride to Um, boost morale. Not during the war in that way, I think, although they did produce three or four, mostly to have something new which could be produced to the best standards with you know, engravings by good engravers and bound, not in full Morocco, but decently done, used so little paper. These were produced and sold, and there were some very slim editions of books, Swinburne and people, with engravings by John Buckland Wright. But things like this one are examples of those very little books that were produced. And the choice of the text, I think, is quite significant there, too. The 91st Psalm. Yes, as one of the things which would appeal, you know, to people who had a fairly grave turn of mind. So it would give them hope, uh, strength? Yes. Right at the end of the war, although not published until 1947, in fact, was a volume which was published as We Happy Few, and it was an anthology of... British things about the war and things like that, you know, quotations. Philip Sidney and Shakespeare, with very nice wood engravings done by John O'Connor, who, when he did many of these engravings, in fact, was still stationed with the um, British troops in Germany. Um, And he was doing some of the engravings uh, for this, you know, before he went um, over with the invasion after D-Day and so on and so forth. Right. It should have been produced as a sort of um, morale boost, as you said.
but they couldn't produce it because they hadn't got the people who continued printing things in the, in the way they hoped. Something we always forget, I, I think, and it comes up in many other ways too, um, there were all sorts of things that were continued and done very well during the war years because they were done by old, old men who'd come out of retirement to keep the factories going. Yeah. And, and when, 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 the, when the troops were demobilised, they yeah. came back. Well, OK, they'd lost all their skills. You know, if you're driving a tank, you're not going to be very good on press work, things yes, like that, yes. until you've been retrained. But the old men had had to go. And so the quality of work went right down over a few years then. Right. And it took uh, some years after the war to build it back yes. up again. Yeah. Because, um, Interesting, yeah. you know, the people who came along hadn't ever learned how to print on dampened paper, which you really needed for the, um, the good work like this when you're using handmade paper. And although the Golden Cockle tried printing uh, on undamped paper, it showed in the you know poorer quality of the work sometimes. So and there was a sort of training business there for the engravers. Um, John Buckland Wright, who I've mentioned before, did the um, uh, probably a lot of work for Golden Cockles in those days. He said he'd really got to learn again how to engrave in a quite different style because he was having to use this less good material. Okay. And I suppose the other things like that happened too. But later on, I think the, the fine printers that we have to operate today were people who'd learned again in the 1950s and 1960s how to dampen but they weren't um, continuing in an old tradition. They'd look on back and look at the textbooks and thought, well, this is how it has to be done. Mm. And then they found out the hard way. Uh, there was a little bit more sort of that, that. So what was the little bit more that they had to find out? Mm -hmm. And I think that distinguishes the, the best printers today uh, from those who are you know, just amateurs, because they have up all these extra skills once more. Hmm. Changing so, the topic a bit, yeah. when you go to see John Randolph, if you yeah. ask him about dampened paper, he may say to you, I don't have to dampen the paper here because this is an old building. <laughs> so uh, yeah. anyway. okay. but, um, Naturally, <laughs> yes. that way, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so w what you're saying then is, uh, and I'm speaking with uh, Roderick Cave, the author of the Golden Cockerel Press, published by the British Library and Oaknall Press. What you're saying then is that the quality of the Golden Cockerel Press ebbs and flows Absolutely. based on what, yes. what's going on in the world at mm -hmm. the time and mm -hmm. the people they have working with them, I suppose. So which ones do you think are, are the best, or which period? Would you say the Robert Gibbings period? Gibbings is part of it. I certainly think the early years when Christopher Sandard took over from him, from 1933-4 through to just before World War II, the condition was just as good. But a lot of people would say, ah, they weren't as good because Gibbings was 
really something of a genius when it came to book design. And Christopher Sandwood was not quite so good, and he was learning. So in his earliest work, he was trying to imitate the giving style in everything that he published. Okay. <laughs> you, can't, you can't escape noise in this, in this city. We're at the pleasant courtyard of the British Library here. I've sort of hinted at particular titles that may be what the collector would want to go after. You don't really want the high points because you, you can't afford them. You do want to get the best quality and the most beautiful design work. How do you, maybe we can even go beyond the scope of the Golden Cockerel. Where might you suggest that the collector go to get something like that that's reasonably priced that, that no one knows about? If I knew the answer to that, I would have bought a lot of them myself. No, it's balancing off different things. You have a passion for one particular artist, or you like the particular texts. And if you've got the right artist and the right text, there's still probably a choice of several different editions that would be perfectly acceptable. So why do you go to the Golden Cockerel Press rather than to the Nunsuch Press if they're doing the same thing? Or, you know, would you really want to splash out and spend a lot of money on the same text printed by William Morris at the Kelmscott Press? Now, I wouldn't want to do that myself because it would seem to me just throwing money down the drain. But some of the lesser editions give much more reward from finding out and searching for yourself for these things. And one of the pleasures I've found always when there's a book fair, like the book fair that Oak Knoll run every other year down in Delaware, you can go along and you can see a whole lot of books there, some of which you love but you can't afford, a lot of books you wouldn't have in your house at <laughs> any cost. <laughs> but in between, there's a, a good many that you'd be very pleased to take home and look again and look again next year with great satisfaction. So the message then is, is a good one, and that is you really do have to go with your, go with your heart, go with what you love, yes. and then try and get the best quality that you can find. Mm -hmm. Okay. Won't go far wrong with that. It's like any work of art that you want in your house. You want to keep it there and you know that you go back and, and get pleasure from it over the years. We were talking about the Huffin picture books and I used to collect those and I, I went a bit mad so I was getting books in Huffin style that were published by other firms. You yeah. know, there were some in New Zealand and Australia and then I thought I'm not looking at these anymore. I do much better to go down to the bookshop and say, take these, give me the money and I'll buy some other books with them instead. And knowing that other people will be getting pleasure out of building those collections. You throw them back in the water and let other people catch them, as opposed to gathering them all together and then trying yes. to <laughs> sell them as a collection to an institution. Well, say. I used to be a librarian by trade, so I'm less interested in preserving them now. Yeah. But one sometimes feels differently when you think nobody else is going to preserve what is there at all yeah. unless you form this collection and preserve the collection. 
Getting back to then the, the history, we're in the 60s now. How much longer does the press go for? Oh, it really folds up round about 1960. Christopher Sanford, in the 1950s, was getting quite elderly and less interested. And I think probably had lost a lot of the money he had when he was younger, and he could not afford to subsidise the press out of his own pocket in mm. the same way. So it never um, really was a going concern for him then? It was a going concern, but I don't think it was the best way of investing his capital if he wanted to make money. He'd had a lot of pleasure making books, but he was no longer getting a, a lot of pleasure by the late 50s. He'd become very keen on one particular artist. Everybody else said, it's rubbish, it's pornography, what are you doing producing these things? And if all his family and friends and everybody said this to him, he obviously wasn't going to get much pleasure from continuing to publish books of this kind. So he sold the press to an American publisher who bought the, the imprints and the back stock and so on, and all the illustrations for the work produced by this man we don't like. Who's that man? Somebody called J. Young Bateman. And we don't like him? I don't like him. I think his work is horrible. He, he was the artist, yes. And But the company was bought by an American publisher? Oh, Golden Cockerel was bought by an American publisher, Thomas Yuseloff, yes. Thomas? Yuseloff. What, Associated University Presses? That was one of his imprints. And his intention was to produce fine books in the tradition in London. It didn't work out quite as he wanted. You know, he was having to use a manager with whom he quarrelled in England. The quality of the work of the books they produced was not very good. Everybody said, this isn't really Golden Cockle stuff at all. So they discontinued after a couple of years. And the imprint still exists. And he does sometimes publish under the Golden Cockle heading. But I think the problem is that, well, he also is a very elderly man now. He hasn't found the way of producing the quality that he wants at a price he can afford to pay. In the end, I suppose, the golden cockerel faded out altogether, and it's such a pity that it went that way. One of my favourite presses is the Vale Press. Oh, yes. A bit like romantic poets who sort of fire very brightly for three or four or mm. five or seven mm. years, and then die, just bang. Yes. And in a way, that might be a better, a better life. It probably was the right way for private presses, I think. They had theories about design and so on that they wanted to uh, embody. Yes. And once you've done that, why do you want to do it again? Yeah, and I mean, that is what the private press is about, isn't it? It's about yes, largely. the expression of the, the personality and their philosophy and their way of what? presenting what they think is important mm. to the world. When you go to see John Randall, though, you'll find the other thing. I mean, he started as somebody who had a passion for printing, wanted to get his fingers dirty, work at the press and so on and so forth. And he's done that, but he's run it now for 40 years. Yeah. With a great deal of flair, he's produced some magnificent books. You probably know his annual matrix. Yes. How he manages to do that 
I can't imagine, even, even though I've written a lot of articles for that myself, how he manages to keep so enthusiastic about so many different aspects of printing yeah. over such a long period. I just to keep the passion alive. Yes, yeah. it's like being keen on steam locomotives. How do you keep the things going? John was writing to me recently, very jubilantly, because he'd at last found somebody who could operate the machine. Uh, okay. The man he'd used before had died and so on. So he's back in business in that way. Oh, great. And there are a lot of other people who'd like to be in this Yeah. But there's not the range of things around anymore that they can do it. The equipment or the uh, training or uh, all of the above? Oh, no, the, the training's possible. It's simply the equipment. There aren't the presses. Type is almost impossible. There is a firm which is making brand new Albion presses. You know, if you want well, there to is pay, a, there I is think £10,000 10, you know. or something for the, for the press. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was young, you could have one for £5 yeah. if you take it away. So it was a, a nice sort of hobby there but it isn't anymore. Certainly been a, a renaissance among letterpress printing recently. And this is where I find this a bit embarrassing because I'm not very interested in contemporary press yeah. work. I love some of the work. I think the quality of some of the engravings and so on is fantastic. And you get some brilliant binders. Well. Perhaps it's just because I'm old, I see a very pretty girl. Okay, I can still see she's a very pretty girl, but I don't want to um, <coughs> take her off with me. And I feel like that about the modern um, fine press work. Perhaps just to wind down, two things. One, I'd like to get the books that you're the most passionate about, the books that you worship. Secondly, advice to the young collector who doesn't have a huge amount of money but is really interested in fine printing and private presses what might be affordable but high quality is the same sort of question I had before if it's golden cockle that you're talking about you mustn't aim too high you're never going to have the four gospels or Chaucer and so on and so forth it's silly to aim at those but you can get a lot of the secondary one travel books Things that Owen Rutter edited in the 1930s, for example, which have very fine quality engravings, and it's the text about Captain Cook or, or whoever it might be. You know, it's an interesting text as well, but they don't spark the interest of a lot of collectors, and so you can get a lot of book for a very little amount of money, so to speak. Perfect. If we go beyond the Golden Cockerel, who do you think, you know, which presses do you think have been overlooked, for example, undervalued? Yes, it's very hard to say that. Okay. Um, among the big presses, the Shakespeare Head Press is the one that I think is most seriously neglected because they did absolutely terrific work between the wars, but they were never on the same level as Menel's Unsuch Press or the Golden Cockle Press, whoever is owning it. He never on the same level, just in terms of the appreciation? Uh, uh, appreciation. Um, there are other small presses which ran in the late 1930s. I think people who were going for those would probably want to go for them for 
different reasons, you know, because it's particularly difficult to get hold of their publications. Um, if you look at the books that were listed by um, Private Libraries Association, Private Press Books, when it started in 1959, you know, there are a lot of books from small presses in England, or in Britain, I should say, Tom Ray's Press at Greenock in Scotland, which operated under different names, Signet Press at one stage, uh, Black Pennell, Lava, and so on. He did very good work uh, in a, an understated way, and the things are cheap, and they can be picked up, and are worth picking up, because they're almost always good examples of production there are other more experimental presses that operated there. The Gogmagog Press of Maurice Cox is one which I used to think was collectible but now has got prices which are far too high. What about the books that you worship? Hmm. I suppose among the golden cockerels the Endymion with wood engravings by John Buckland Wright all the four Gospels would be the real high points for me. But that's probably because I fell in love with them when I was in my late teens. You know, I saw both of them at that age. I still think they are perfect books. How about outside the Golden Cockroach? Fine printing. I find it difficult to put it down to just one or two books. Um, there's quite a lot of the books with wood engraved illustrations that John Randall has produced the things illustrated by John O'Connor or other contemporary artists. I think the that's terrific. The Whittington Press. Yes. And they're still but around. Really, when you think of the quality of the work that's gone into them, they're often remarkably cheap. But, you know, you won't get it for £5, nor 50 But if you're prepared to pay two or £300, you can get some really very attractive books indeed books which, if you want to look at it in mercenary sense, will still have the value retained in 10 years, 20 years, 40 years' time as well. So you can persuade your wife that she's going to be a rich woman when you die. <laughs> <laughs> My wife doesn't believe that one for a moment. Well, on that note, thank you so much yeah. for uh, great advice and interesting history of a renowned press. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to, to talk about it again now. Roderick Cave is the author of the Golden Cockerel Press, a retired academic and an expert on fine private presses. Thanks again. My pleasure. It's been very nice to meet you.